The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. It can be found on page 899 in the Black Bibles. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading, Francis. Welcome. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is John Trapp, one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It really is great to have all of you here with us. Um, it has been a sweet day in many ways, having baptisms and, and new members. We've got kids coming for First Communion, um, but there's also bitterness that uh, we have in our hearts today uh, from this week, as uh, I know you've already heard us refer to Covenant Presbyterian and uh, everything that happened at that school and church this past week uh, struck very, uh, very close nerve for many of us. Covenant Presbyterian is a sister church in our denomination. We have former members of Christ the King who are now members there. There are people I can think of just earlier this month from that church who, who visit us often when they're in Houston. Um, we have people on our staff and people in our church who are very close with folks on the staff and people who lost uh, friends and family members this past, this past weekend or this past Monday. Um, I'm pretty shaken about it, personally. I worshiped at Covenant for four years when I was at Vanderbilt University in college, and I worked there for a summer as the youth intern. And we are, we are very grieved in many ways that this horrible kind of event that's been happening in our country has, for many of us, hit closer to home than it ever has before this week. And so we're left now with, with our grief, with our confusion, uh, for many of us, maybe even anger or sadness, frustration. What do we do with all that? You may remember that there was a group of people who were feeling this same kind of way that we looked at just a couple weeks ago in John chapter 11. This was a group of people who were grieving at the tomb of someone that they loved, that they had lost, a man named Lazarus. 
and people from Lazarus' own family, Mary and Martha, had sent for Jesus, had asked for Jesus to come and to help, and Jesus had delayed in coming. He delayed for multiple days, and then when he finally does show back up, Mary and Martha separately go up to Jesus and they tell him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They bring their complaint to Jesus. They bring maybe even their questions, you could say, to Jesus. Where were you? Why would you let this happen? And for many of us, this is the kind of question that we have had this week. Why, God? Why? I want you to see that God doesn't leave us with those questions. I also want you to see that he often responds to our questions and our demands in ways that we often don't anticipate. But he always responds because he's really, really good. And he shows us his goodness most clearly through his son, Jesus, who we need to see. Um, As some of you have noticed, we've gone back to wearing robes. One of the reasons that I wanted to do that is because this robe, which was given to me at my ordination, has a little message cross-stitched in the collar. And it's a quote from the Greeks that we read here in this passage in John 12. It's simply, sir, we wish to see Jesus. My mom cross-stitched that into the collar of my robe. And it's a reminder every single week that what we need to see is Jesus. And our good father, we believe, has given us him so that we might know who God is. So let's come to him now and ask him to help us. Let's pray. Most holy, righteous, sovereign king over all who we get to call our father. We come to you now asking you to help us. In your grace, you have given us your word and by your grace, you've given your Holy Spirit to help us rightly hear and understand your word. So we ask now for your help. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Amen. Well, we are looking at this triumphal entry that occurs in Jerusalem at the beginning of of Holy Week and Jesus' journey to the cross. And there's two things that I want you to see, uh, two points to my outline this morning. First, there's a demand that's made, the demand. And second, the response. The demand and the response. All of this is happening in the wake of that story of, of Lazarus that I just referenced a second ago. And the story of Lazarus in a lot of ways is a picture of the story of the whole of the Old Testament where God's people, the people whom God loves, cry out to God for help. There, you could say, is a demand. There's a a demand and a need for a savior. And all throughout the Old Testament story, there's a question of, is God going to supply the rescue that is demanded by his people? And it happens over and over throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes it happens because of the people's disobedience. And there then is a demand for deliverance from some invading country or someone who is oppressing them and God raises up deliverers over and over and over again. But sometimes there is a cry for deliverance that comes from people like David who is just hiding in a cave because someone wants to kill him. And one of the things that that we see throughout the Old Testament story and then with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus 
is, is we see something that's very true to the human experience, which is that when we find ourselves in moments of desperation, we cry out to God. Even people who don't believe in God in moments of desperation will cry out to him. You've heard of people recounting stories of maybe in being in a car accident and the collision is about to happen and they cry out, oh God. They cry out for deliverance. Maybe you've heard soldiers recount being in a foxhole and the, the battle really beginning to heat up and men who've maybe never believed in God, never prayed to God, begin crying out to God for deliverance. That's, that's a picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament and, and it's what we see happen here with God's people. And they're about to celebrate in Jerusalem the most famous story of God answering his people's prayer for deliverance. They're about to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a time that the people of Israel would remember everything that happened in the book of Exodus, which actually begins with God's people in slavery. And you know what they do? They cry out. There is, there is a demand and a need for rescue and the people cry out to God for a rescue. And, and we see that God hears them and he sees them and he remembers his promises to them. And God sends a deliverer through his, his servant Moses who comes and he begins to speak to the Pharaoh of Egypt and warn him and then God sends 10 plagues upon Egypt and the 10th plague is what's celebrated at Passover. When God tells his people that he is going to send judgment upon the land of Egypt and the judgment isn't just gonna fall on only the Egyptians, it will also fall on anyone who does not put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And that judgment will be that the firstborn of every family in Egypt will die. And so God's people obey the Lord. They put the blood of, the, of a sacrificial lamb over the doorpost. And God's judgment comes upon the people of Egypt. And they send them away. They send Israel away. Israel is freed. That's, that is the celebration that the people are about to have when they remember God's rescue. Now, you've got you've to imagine yourself being in Jerusalem. You've got... Scholars think maybe about 2 million people, which back then was a ton of people to be in one place at one time. About 2 million people gathering to the city. They're about to celebrate the time when God delivered them and rescued them. And they're once again finding themselves in a moment where they need deliverance because they're under the thumb of once again, the world superpower, which is exactly what was happening in Exodus. Except now it's not Egypt, it's Rome. And, and they are longing for a deliverer. And now the ripple of news of what Jesus has done with Lazarus has spread throughout the city. You see it in verse 17. The people who were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they're there at this festival, at this feast. And they're telling everyone about Jesus and about what he's done. And so the people are looking at Jesus saying, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to once again deliver us? Has God once again held true to his covenant promises? Has he once again supplied the savior for our need? But then what you see is while God has met the demand and the need for a savior, now these people have demands for God. They have demands 
for Jesus. And we see this in a couple ways. First, we see it with the palm branches. Kids, if you notice, you got palm branches. The palm branches, they were not just for hitting your brother and sister with the palm branches, okay? There, there was a, a real purpose to these palm branches. They were a political symbol in that day because they were, they were actually a symbol of something that had happened about 150 years before when the Seleucid Empire had invaded Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, and this man named Simon Maccabeus led a revolt against the Seleucids. They got the Seleucids out of Jerusalem. And when they did that, they threw basically a ticker tape parade with music and palm branches. The palm branch became in the, in the Jewish imagination a symbol of freedom and of victory. And so in walks Jesus and guess what comes out? The palm branches. Free us. But not only is, are they being symbolic with, what, with what's being communicated, they're actually saying to him, Hosanna. Hosanna, which comes from the Hebrew word, which means save us, but there's a timestamp on that command. Save us now. Save us right now. They want deliverance. They want political salvation right now. And the reason I would suggest that, that the kind of salvation that they're talking about is a political salvation is because of what they say after they say Hosanna. They quote Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add a little something to God's word. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add even the king of Israel. You see, they have an idea and they're communicating it with their symbols and with their words and with their maybe even a little twisting or addition of God's word of this is what we need right now to make our world, to make our life work and be right again. We need you to save us now, become the king, kick out Rome, establish your kingdom and our kingdom here now. And friends, I want you to know that asking Jesus to save us is a very good thing. They are right even to recognize that Jesus is the king of Israel. That is a good thing. But they go wrong and we go wrong when we get our own ideas for what our salvation and what Jesus' rule is gonna look like. What is the first thing that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we, we might even pray, thy kingdom come, but my will be done. That's kind of what they're doing here. Yeah, great, have your kingdom, but like, make sure you do what I want you to do. They're asking Jesus for political power, and friends, we need to ask ourselves how many Christians are doing the same thing even today. Is the salvation that we need going to come from having the right person that we want in office? Or the policies that we want enacted? Is even the, the time that you spend watching the news or surfing the web, does it communicate where you think your salvation lies? It doesn't mean that we disengage with the world. It might mean that we disengage a little bit with just how much news that we are ingesting. Are we being shaped more by the words that are coming at us or by the word of God as he's revealing his will to us for the kind of salvation that we actually really need?
because we have all kinds of ideas about the kind of saving we want Jesus to do right now. Jesus, save me now and get me the job that I want or get me the spouse that I want or the child that I long for. Jesus, save me right now from this chronic pain. Jesus, give me better physical health or better better mental health now. Save me now. Friends, those are all good things. And yet, all of those things are too small for what our real need demands. We even see this in what happens with Lazarus. I mean, think about these people. They're, they're planning this political conquest and they think they have a super weapon. They have a king who can raise people from the dead. What kind of army could you assemble if, even, if they get, if, even if your soldier's killed, your king just raises them back from the dead? That is a super weapon. And so they've got plans for, for this. But even if you go back and look just a couple verses back in John chapter 12 and look at verses nine and 10. Turn in your Bibles real quick. I shouldn't have turned away from it, but let me get there. Look at verse nine. This is what happens after Lazarus is raised from the dead. Actually skip down to verse 10 of chapter 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, Mary and Martha, they they get what they wanted. They had asked for Lazarus to be raised back from the dead. But here's the problem. Lazarus, who would have had a pretty interesting testimony, if you ever think about that, life didn't, didn't go very well for Lazarus after he was raised from the dead. He had people trying to kill him after he came back to life. We actually don't even know how long he lasted. Maybe not too long. It didn't go well for the rest of Jesus' disciples. See, Mary and Martha get their brother back, but the world is still broken. Lazarus is brought back to a hard world that is filled with sin and that's filled with murderous people. We need something better, and Jesus knows that. And we can see that in his response. Second point, his response. At his triumphal entry, Jesus is subverting our ideas of what power and salvation is actually gonna look like. His humble means of transportation is telling us something about his humble means for salvation that he plans. He's gonna give them something way better, way better than than what they're asking for, but he's going to do it in a way that they would never, ever expect. And he begins communicating that even by the way that he enters into the city because he creates an absurd scene. When when I was reading about this and imagining this scene, it actually reminded me of a YouTube clip that I think is pretty funny. And it's of this mixed martial arts fighter named Mike Perry who's about to go fight in a UFC fight in the octagon and he's getting pumped up. And you know, whenever someone's about to go out and fight, they pick their music that they're gonna walk into and you wanna just strike fear into the heart of your opponent that you're about to fight. And so what Mike Perry chose is the theme song to the video game Halo, which I know that's lost on some of y'all, but just trust me, it is a very intense go fight the aliens, like da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. It is a great, it's a great song choice 
to go into the octagon with. It would strike fear in the heart of your opponents. But whoever was running the soundboard at this MMA fight got the incorrect memo and instead thought that Mike Perry wanted to walk out to Beyonce's halo. And so he's walking out and it's like, everywhere I'm looking up, surrounded by your embrace. Baby, I can see your halo. You know you're my saving grace. Not really striking fear into the heart of your opponent. But that's what Mike Perry walks out there and he actually embraces it and it's great. But Jesus creates a similar absurd scene. He goes and finds this small donkey, not even a big one, a little one. And again, this reminded me when, when I was the, the student ministry director here at Christ the King, we did a youth trip, or uh, I'm sorry, we did a, a leader's retreat with all of our volunteers. We went out to someone's ranch and they had baby donkeys out there and kind of like teenage donkeys out there. And they were about this tall. And late at night, we asked, we asked the ranch owner, hey, can those hold people? And she's like, oh yeah, they're beasts of burden. Absolutely. And so um, one of us gave Joe Deegan $20 to go and try to sit on one of these. <laughs> and we were so excited. It was gonna be so funny. This thing's gonna buck him and it's gonna get, and he goes and sits on it and that donkey couldn't have looked more annoyed. It just stood there so angry. I laughed so hard, I almost threw up. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And, but he looked absurd on the back of this tiny donkey. And if you look even in, in John chapter 12, the order that John writes this, everyone begins shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It's after Jesus hears that that he goes and gets the donkey. They're, they're all excited about this, this big, impressive king who's gonna come in and Jesus like, hey, go get that little tiny donkey. I'm gonna get on it. And I'm gonna enter the city. It is an absurd scene. But Jesus is communicating something to us. What is he doing? I, I think there's a, a few things that he's communicating here. First off, Jesus is mocking Satan. Do you remember the last temptation when, when, when Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the last temptation that Satan holds out to Jesus is, if you'll just kneel before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You will get to be king. That would have been tempting. Theologians say that, that Satan was offering Jesus the crown without the cross. And that's essentially what the people of Israel are doing once again. They are, they are echoing that same satanic temptation to Jesus. Fix, fix our political problem, which is actually such a smaller problem than the problem that you know that needs to be fixed, which is our sin problem and the brokenness of this world problem. And so Jesus, he critiques that by as these people, while, while these people give him this great kingly celebration, he gets on a tiny donkey colt and he mocks, he mocks the offer that they are making to him. C.S. Lewis um, wrote the screw tape letters. He quoted uh, Martin Luther and St. Thomas More 
about mocking Satan. Luther says this, the best way to drive out the devil if he will not yield to texts of scripture is to jeer and flout him for he cannot bear scorn. And St. Thomas More writes, the devil, that proud spirit cannot endure to be mocked. He's a proud spirit. And Jesus looks at the, off, at the offer of a kingdom, of a kingdom where death and suffering and pain still reigns. And he says, that's a kingdom for the donkeys. I don't want it. Jesus is subverting their idea of the kind of saving that they need and how he'll do it. And he's going to do it by becoming weak, which we don't like. We are far less comfortable with weakness and with losing than God is. Just yesterday, my daughter came home from this dance competition and I was like, hey, how did, how'd the dance competition go? She said, well, um, you know, all of our dances get ratings. I was like, oh, okay, cool. What, what, what ratings did you get? She was like, well, different dances got different ratings. Some of our dances got top first. I was like, wow, that's, sounds like you did pretty well. She's like, well, yeah, it was okay. How was top first not the best? She was like, oh, no, we got, we got that too. Some of the dances we got were elite first. I was like, wait, so there's two firsts? Well, she's like, no, like elite first is really first. And then if you don't get elite first, then you get top first. I was like, what if you don't get elite first or top first? She's like, then you just get first. <laughs> so everybody got first. All of them got, you get a first, then you get a first, then you get a first. We all get firsts. Why do we do this? That's a whole separate sermon, but... Why we do this because we are not comfortable with failure. But our Savior is. And, and he's telling them, listen, you want me to be king. The way that that's going to happen is I am going to lose. And he comes in and he's riding on this donkey, which, which John points out to us is the fulfillment it's the fulfillment of a prophecy. A prophecy from Zechariah 9, where the prophet says, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt to the foal of a donkey. That's the part that John quotes says, Do you know what the next verse talks about? Listen to verse 10. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. What's Jerusalem want? They want their own kingdom of Israel. What does this one who's coming in on the donkey want? He wants salvation for the nations. You see what happens right, right after he comes in? Who comes up to Jesus? It's the first foreigners seeking out Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, okay, let's talk. He doesn't talk. What does he immediately begin talking about when they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus? He starts talking about his death. He starts talking about how he is going to save the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophet Zechariah tells us. Jesus is, is showing us that the way that he intends 
to have victory is going to be by losing, by dying. This is Jesus' ultimate answer to Martha and Mary. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus shows up. He enters in and his triumphal entry is one where he's going in to pay. He's going in to pay the price so that things that happened to Lazarus would stop happening. So that the kind of things that happened in Nashville on Monday morning would one day stop happening. He goes in to pay the price for that. He understands what it's like to suffer in that kind of way. In 1957, there was a German playwright named Gunther Rutenborn who was living in Germany in kind of the, the wreckage of everything that had happened from World War II and the rise of the Third Reich. And there were all these questions in their country at that time, as you can imagine, whose fault was this? Why, why did we let this happen? And so Rutenborn actually wrote a play that explored this question. And in the play, he had all these different people come in. The, play, the setting of the play was a courtroom and all these people are brought in and they're cross-examined to see if, if if everything that happened in Germany during World War II was their fault. The first person who's brought in is, is a private in the German Nazi army. And he's cross-examined and it's, and it's discovered that, well, you know, there, there were authorities over him telling him to do what he did. And the rest of the play is just going further and further up the chain of command to his commander and then eventually to Adolf Hitler but it doesn't stop there because eventually in Rutenborn's play, the person who's brought in and is put in the seat of the defense is God. God had authority. God is in control of all things. And in Rutenborn's play, the judge, the judge sentences God for all that has happened in World War II and he says that God must become a man. He must become a Jew and a wanderer on the earth. He must become homeless and hungry and live as a despised Jew. He must die the death at the hands of a world power that puts him through the mockery of an unfair trial. And he must suffer a horrific death. Friends, there is no other God like Jesus Christ. He was not guilty for the atrocities that have happened in this world. And he welcomes us to trust him that while he can stop them and while he has not yet fully put an end to all of our suffering and all of our pain, he has demonstrated that he is fully invested with his very body and blood to purchase the redemption of sinners who have brought the atrocities of our world into our life, who have broken his shalom. He has purchased their redemption with his body and with his blood and with his perfect righteous life lived on their behalf and he gives it to anyone who would look to him in faith and call out to Jesus, save me. Lord, save me. Hosanna, save me now. 
not with the kind of salvation that I think that I need, but the salvation that you know that I need. Let your will be done. Save me. Jesus, Jesus enters in because he has a better salvation in mind. A salvation that John later depicts in the book of Revelation. Chapter seven, verse nine. John says this. As he envisions what eternity will be like. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That's a lot of people in heaven. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, not just the Jews, not just the Americans, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white and what's in their hands? With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to the lamb, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who entered into our pain and our suffering, who died to take it away. Salvation belongs to him who sits on the throne. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your grace that you have revealed to us through your son, Jesus. Sir, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this day. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.